Welcome to the 10 Frame Podcast for Emerging Artists, brought to you from the downtown Savannah rooftop suites. My name is Kelly Thompson. And I am Kevin Kirkwood. And you can find us at the 10 Frame on Instagram. On Instagram. And our Gmail, the 10 Frame at Gmail. You can find me at kellythompsonart.com and on Instagram at kellykthompsonart. And my website is kevinwillpaint.com and my IG is kevinkirkwood.studio. Hey everyone, today we have Fiorella Escalon. She's a Latin American artist who currently lives in the United States. She's a mixed media creator and we would like to ask her a few questions about her artwork. Hello Fiorella, how are you today? Hey guys, how are you? So Fiorella, how can people reach you? Let's just get that off, you know, right off the top. You can reach me on my Instagram page. It's fiorella.escalon.art. Cool. And your website is? Uh, fiorellaescalon.com. There's not very many of me, obviously. Uh, pretty unusual. One name. and only. So you will be able to find it. So um, we mentioned that you're from Latin America. We would want to know a little bit more about that. I think you're from El Salvador. Is that correct? Yes, I am. So I was born there and I grew up there and I moved to the United States in 2001. Since you've been in the States, I know your background, you have a law degree, correct? I do. So you're well equipped for the business end of being an artist. Yes. Do not call me if, you know, you go to jail. I cannot get you out of jail. People may call you anyway, but... <laughs> I'm not that kind of lawyer. Just She can write you a good contract once you get out. Yes, that I can do. But I have not practiced in over 20 years. I moved to the States because my uh, husband, he's also from El Salvador, but he immigrated when he was very young. And he's a doctor. Back then, he was doing his surgical residency. So I had to move to the States. And even though I could speak English, it was still pretty big culture shock. Now I think uh, 22 years in, it's, it's going good. Where did you move to? So how big was the city that you were living in? And then how big was the city that you moved to? So uh, San Salvador is over a million people. We have uh, museums, theater, symphony and uh, I moved to Galveston, Texas and uh, if you don't know Galveston it's uh, it's an island uh, um, barrier island off of Houston and it is actually the has the largest concentration of Victorian architecture west of the Mississippi so it's uh, it's really lovely and there is culture but not to the degree that I was used to so while you were in the States at the beginning, since you've been taking care of children, were you practicing at all as an artist? I know you did a lot of creative things. So no, I was not practicing as an artist. I, that's what I, I originally wanted to do, but my dad like 
any dad who has a teenager that says, oh, you know, I'd love to go to art school. And you as a parent, you're like, no, you need to get yourself a paying job. So that's why I went into law school. My dad told me, listen, it's either law school or business administration, economics, or something where you can make a living. So uh, so that's what I, that's why I went to law school. So when uh, I moved here and I had my son, my son was very, very rambunctious and uh, I couldn't leave anything out. I mean, he would eat stuff or, uh, you know, just get into things. So Participatory I, art project. Right. Yes, uh, but you don't want paint all over the house. I mean, a toddler with, uh, you know, hands full of paint, or it's just not a good thing. So Fiorella, you, you opened up a little bit about your family and how maybe your parents weren't supportive of some of your endeavors. I also had similar scenarios where I just wanted to be a drummer my whole life. I just always, since the age of four, and so in high school, just throughout my whole youth, I was playing drums, and that's what I was dedicated to be. And they always in- encouraged me or stressed the importance of having another option, another plan. So after I fulfilled my my dream of making music, I shifted gears. And I think it, I did it um, subconsciously because of my parents trying to get me a better education. So I went into architecture, but now I've shifted back and I'm doing creative things. Not that architecture isn't creative, but I'm making paintings and just whatever, creative, using my hands to create my own environments. And I'm more at peace doing that. I'm just curious if that is, does that resonate with you? Is it similar or parallel with what you're doing, experiencing? So yet yeah, it was the same for me. I really enjoyed law school, but uh, when I finished, I felt that practice of law was a bit repetitive you know there's no room for creativity you know creativity and the law are not a good combination so that was something that i i mean i got bored very very quickly Uh, so when i finished uh, law school i i thought you know what i need to uh, go and maybe get a mba you know just something different because I was bored with the work that I was doing. It's the same in architecture, I would say, where it's repetitive. Many of the offices that I worked in, um, it's just the same copy and paste, you know, if you get a good design. And I think it maybe is because building codes and planning and zoning codes are dictating these things that the law is based on previous decisions, right? Yes, in uh, El Salvador, we have codified law. So uh, everything's written down. But to give you an example, uh, it's very, very rare that you are going to make a contract or draft a contract that nobody else has drafted before. So there's templates for everything. Right, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, you may have to adapt it a little bit, but there's not a lot of creativity there where you could say, oh, yes, I am satisfying my creative side by writing. It it wasn't like that. So I I was getting really bored, and I knew that I wanted something different. So talk about your transition into, into the art world. So basically was, um, you know, my husband and I got married. We had uh, two children. I raised those children then uh, because both children are in the autism spectrum. I thought, you know, I have to give back. So I created a foundation 
and through my foundation. And so what I do through that is I give to the autism causes that I believe in. And uh, I helped uh, raise money for the Nonpareil Institute and we opened a campus in Orlando. So after I did that, I was looking for something to do and then COVID hit. And I started thinking, okay, what did I not do with my life? I mean, the thought of dying was very real at that point, right at the beginning. Yeah, so COVID kind of brought around a lot of that for many people. You start thinking about your mortality and life is short, follow your passion now. Yes, so it was, a random Tuesday and uh, my husband came home from the hospital because he's a surgeon, he has critical care experience. So, you know, I mean, things were pretty hard there for a while. So he came home and he opened this bottle of wine that still had at least 10 more years to age. It was a random Tuesday. We didn't even have like a nice steak or nice food to go with it. We were just drinking that bottle of wine and I thought- Wine is dinner. Come on. Yeah, so I thought, oh my God, we're gonna die. So I started thinking, okay, what did I not do with my life that I really wanted to do? You know, like bucket list kind of thing. And that was it, you know, I did not go to art school and I always wished that I could. What was that though? When you were younger, when you were a kid, I mean, did you draw? I mean, what was the impetus behind art school that seems diametrically opposed to law school? Maybe that's why. Is that why? <laughs> was that a reason? So I always liked uh, creative things. I uh, never had lessons, art lessons of any kind. But my mom was always a really creative person, and she was always making things. And because I was the youngest by ten years, my mom would take me along, and I would be doing everything that she was doing. So you know, she taught me to make crafts and sew, and you know just all those crafts that are viewed as women's work. Can you think of a specific piece of work you did as a kid? I mean, I still remember some of the drawings I did when I was in grade school. Was there one piece where you're like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool? Uh, Or an experience, it doesn't have to be a piece. So, you know, my mom um, self-taught, so she taught herself how to sew, and uh, she went to this party and everybody, they were very excited about her dress. Uh, where did you get the dress? And she said, oh, I made it. So then she started making <laughs> made to measure dresses. It was crazy. So all her friends would come and uh, my mom would make them party dresses and uh, I would watch what my mom was making and I would make the exact same dress for my Barbies. Uh, so so that's why I'm particularly interested in fibers and uh, crafts that are art that is based on fiber and thread and embroidery and uh, because that's the earliest I think art uh, related thing that I did and now you're completing your MFA yes and you have many different facets of your practice you started out you're in the painting department talk about where you started and where you are now you've had quite a transition in a very short period of time yes uh so when i first applied you know i applied and uh, i don't know how i got accepted maybe they were worried that there were many people applying because covid and we're gonna die so okay we're just gonna let this lady in so was that your inner dialogue 
the only reason why you got in is because they thought everyone was going to die and might as well just let this one in too. You know, it was like an Elle Woods moment when Elle decides there in the sorority that she's going to go to Harvard Law. Uh, That's legally blonde. Yeah. Yes. And she makes this video and sends it to admissions. I don't know what compelled people to accept me here, uh, but anyway, (laughs) I'm here. Maybe it's because you are a good artist and a creative person and they saw something in you. Thank you. But I didn't know how to paint. I think after seeing what you're working on now, compared to, you know, a lot of what other people are doing, I think that's a good thing. I think the fact that you didn't have formal training gives you a totally different perspective. You know, you pull in your historical references and your your upbringing, and that's what you're using as impetus to create as opposed to preconceived notions about what art should be and i think that's an advantage it's obvious when you're looking at your work that it's coming from a place that only you could um, generate it so uh, well it's kind of crazy right but i don't know any of the rules so i just there are no rules come on you know they keep telling us that there's no rules uh, I don't know. There's like, uh, sometimes I feel like they forget about it and they're like, oh, you should have done like this and this. This is how we do it. And I'm like, well, you know, there I don't are definitely have some ingrained, a lot of ingrained biases, no matter what people tell you about, you can do whatever you want. I mean, it's true, you can, but. So, uh, and I think that that's the way that, you know, when I make something, I don't really know how to make it. I may have an idea, but I don't know really how to use the material. So I try to figure it out in my own way. Sometimes I think that not having that training, I find like new uses for materials, for tools, uh, techniques. I always want to keep evolving and making things that are different. I get bored really quickly. So, you know, I, I make and make and make until I completely exhaust that curiosity and then I need to move on to something else. So to get a little bit more specific, talk about the piece that you've been spending a majority of your time on recently. What it is, what the process is, and you know, kind of the conceptual uh, idea behind it. You mean the big blue fiber space. One of the things that I've had to struggle here in school is that like we said, people have preconceived notions. So, you know, I'm uh, viewed as the spoiled wife uh, who's here on a whim. So I thought, okay, you know, if this is uh, people's opinions, you know, I might as well lean into it. So I started making all this work that had references to domesticity, femininity, labor, because it's, I mean, it's really, really hard to raise two kids and take care of a home after you've already had a career. You know, there's like a part of you that's very affected by that. You know, you feel that you're missing your potential, that you could be doing something more interesting than folding clothes. And laundry to me is that task that never ends. I mean, there's, I don't know if you guys have read it, Simone uh, de Beauvoir's Second Sex. She has this reference to Sisyphus where, you know, he rolls the stone up and then when he uh, is all the way up there, the stone rolls back down and then he has to get it back up uh, for eternity. Well, that's what happens with laundry. (laughs) Uh, You know, it just multiplies. Well, you can do, you can do it the rich person's way too. just wear the clothes until they're dirty 
throw them away and <laughs> buy new. Is that what you do? Secretly, entirely wealthy, yes. <laughs> yeah, so we joke that uh, anytime I see something that says Kelly or Thompson, do people know your last name? Uh, that Kelly's the <laughs> owner and that he secretly has millions, so I complain when I don't get a you know, a discount at Kelly's ice cream. You've probably seen this shirt like 800 times, so they're not all brand new. As, as so anyway, we digress. What were we talking about oh yeah, uh, so yeah, Sisyphus as, pushing uh, a rock, up pushing a, hill. a rock. So and a lot of my art comes from a place of anger, and I am definitely angry with laundry. I have a bone to pick. We need to get Fiorella a heavy bag and a pair of good good MMA gloves, <laughs> and she, she just put it up somewhere, and she can beat the crap out of it. We can change the face. So I just started reading this book. It's over there. It's called, it's by Rick Rubin, The Creative Act. He just released it. And the thing that I read either this morning or last night was when you're searching for that creative energy, some people will put on boxing gloves and just beat the hell out of something for like five minutes. And then they go immediately and and start writing. And that, what you just said, what what you're all talking about kind of reminded me of that. I almost feel like if you did that, you'd be releasing, kind of exerting those creative energies where you could be putting them into something else. I'd feel like after I did that, I'd just want to go sit down (laughs) and not create anything. Or even just moving, like dancing. You know Osha? Have you ever heard of Osha? Yeah, those are the ones that um, find you if you're you're not up to code, right? Do they yeah. have a dance? I've never seen the OSHA dance before. I've, yeah. We've had to dance outside of the back. And when I was in the automotive business, we used to we had the um, code words mm-hmm. when there was uh, an inspector around, and we we definitely danced out the back of the shop when they were coming. Did so. you only wear purple? <sighs> only a purple underwear. <laughs> Did OSHA only wear purple? Uh, no. I have no idea. I don't remember why. Is what what is the significance <laughs> of purple? That's just what these OSHA people wore. Okay, sorry. I so uh, OSHA people and they're, they have special dance. Are they like the Blue Man Group? Yeah, maybe to some people they're just as foreign. But so in a nutshell, they um, were a, a compound in eastern Oregon, which is in the middle of nowhere, in a city called Antelope, and they basically overtook this community. And part of their practice was to just move around, move your body, just like those um, objects that are in front of you. Was there a documentary about them? I saw that. Or something like that. It looks like some freaks, man. It is, which ties it back to OSHA and where were we at before that? The purple underwear. (laughs) (laughs) You should see when, uh, when this is the Day Drinkers podcast, we go down some rabbit holes. I mean, we've Right. Damn it! I, why are we why are we stuck with purple underwear and OSHA? As we were talking about, we were talking about the fibers piece. We can we can I can I got it. The book by Rick Rubin. Yeah, Rick Rubin. Punch in a bag, and so anyways, these these people, the OSHA people, they do all these crazy dances, and it's supposed to be a way of releasing energy. So I believe that. I don't. I, know why, why? I would even. I I can't even dance in my studio by myself since I can't dance. I would embarrass myself. Just promise me one thing. <laughs> if you ever do, make sure you record it. Oh, I will. I'm going to do it next time I get the Dremel tool out. I'm going to I'm gonna shoot some sparks and dance at the same time. <laughs> You're going to go viral.
It'll be a, a virus, that's for sure. I really want you to be able to paint a visual, pun intended, picture of this piece that you're working on. Um, this piece that I'm uh, working on right now came about from an article that I read about carnivorous plants. So this one's uh, from the Laundry-inspired piece. So I read this article, and it talked about people that uh, get really into carnivorous plants, but not, you know, like the Venus flytraps or the ones that look like bosses. It's these, you know, pitcher plants, and the name of a plant, the genus, is Nepenthes. So people will even lose their houses over them. They get so obsessed with collecting them that it completely takes over their life. So I read the article and I thought, okay, this is kind of crazy. I've had little pitcher plants before, mainly, you know, for their purpose. You know, if you have a place in the house where bugs go to die, just put a pitcher plant there and the bug... They eat flies and that kind of thing. But... These, you know, Victorians were fascinated with carnivorous plants. Darwin thought that it was the most interesting thing that he had worked on. So, you know, there's like this whole thing on on that. But that fact that people get so obsessed with them that they will lose their houses over them. What's the obsession? I don't understand. So, you know, this is family friendly, but plants have a certain look to them when you do you'll see why you know get this a, isn't family friendly we can say whatever the uh, so whatever we want um you've been warned then uh so the pictures are collected uh generally by young-ish single men and they look like body parts like female and male genital body parts so people get obsessed with them and there's so they look like both there's many you know there's some that have teeth others have fangs that's Um, the vagina dentata yes so you know so those were ideas that i had to bring that into the arts so since uh, my art has a bit of a feminist vein i thought okay uh Uh, what Kelly just mentioned and I thought okay why don't I make these nepenthes so I made them made the carnivorous plants out of fiber generally wool or silk and I felted that onto uh, silk silk backing and it's you know translucent so a lot of my art plays with transparency and translucency so I made that I did a paint pour over it I like to use paint like fiber and fiber like paint so I also use the paint strips that I make and use the to weave and uh, you know just simulate the vining nature of the plant right so it's a flat piece it's on the wall Mm -hmm. um, or at least you're working on it on the wall it acts as a painting almost where it's it's dimensional but it has line work and color um, but it is hung flat on the wall. Are you planning on to, when it's finished, are you going to show it that way? or? It will be on the wall. I feel that I want to, not only, you know, it's a female archetype, the man-eater. That's what Victorians called these plants when they first encountered them. They were man-eaters. But I also want to challenge the division between fine art and craft. You know, painting is usually seen as the male, craft is seen as female. So, you know, I wanted to say something about that. But yes, I want to present it as a painting, not as a 
a craft or a tablecloth or rug or whatever. You definitely have blurred the line between craft and fine art. I mean, you've taken what would traditionally be considered craft and pushing it well into the realm of fine art in a very unusual way. So I think you've successfully blurred the lines there. You know, craft processes was something that I knew how to do. So I will take fine arts materials and apply the craft processes to them. And that is how I make things. I have a question about the themes that you derive from your work. And it seems like there's a thread of plants, right? Did you talk about that? So, uh, like the bamboo, the wreath, the this current this current plant that you're talking about you know there's always flowers and plants in my work i think it's hilarious that you know i'm a flower painter in mfa because it's you know like such a cliche that you know when you're a flower painter nobody takes you seriously so you're talking about the paint skins then right Mm -hmm. so that would be something for people that well at least that i find interesting you're taking paint right out of the tube and creating new objects or paintings with the paint? Can you just talk about what you're creating with those paint skins? Yeah, so there's two, like paint skins and paint strips. So the paint skins, anybody who paints, you know, if you leave the palette alone, it happened to me that, you know, my kids were fighting, I had to go out and break up the fight. And, you know, by the time I got back to whatever I was doing, everything had dried on the palette. And I started scraping it off and I thought, oh, this is kind of pretty. And uh, because I grew up in El Salvador during uh, the war, we never throw away things. You're recycling Uh, the things that most people throw away. Exactly. I'm, uh, well, I'm a bit of a hoarder too, but that's another story. So, so that's how I started using the paint skins. I thought they were pretty and I started making collages with them. And then that expanded. I made really large collages to the point where the entire painting was made out of paint. There was no substrate. So the paint strips came about because somebody came into my studio, said that I didn't know how to mix colors and that I was painting straight from the tube. And I thought, okay, I will give you something straight from the tube. So I squirted out all the paints I had. It didn't matter how much money that was. Later, I had to come to terms with that, but I squirted it all out, let it dry, stripped it off, and I wove a basket. And then uh, I kept uh, working with them and like I said before using uh, that paint as fiber because you can weave it you can make macrame with it so I used those processes to make this very large installation with the paint strips and uh, uh, it was fun how large are the pieces so the paint strip installation for example they're made on wreaths you know like the green wire wreaths you see at a craft store that's what I bought so it's 124 inch circle two 18 inches and then two that are 12 and you can arrange them in whatever way to suit the location where they will be displayed you know i think uh, i'm highly adaptable so my artwork has to be highly adaptable so the wreaths they they're suspended from the ceiling they if i were to describe it there there's a, a circular wire mechanism and then you hang the paint dry paint strips over them and then 
you suspend them at various heights, like from four feet to eight feet off the ground, something like that. Yes, and it looks like the paint is raining down on you. Yeah, like a shan- not a chandelier, like a jellyfish almost. Yeah. You know, some people think that they look like uh, chandeliers, a chandelier that is mm-hmm. melting on you. Right. But I thought, you know, because the piece was created from that place of you know, somebody telling me, oh, you know, you don't know anything, you know, you need to go back to your housewife box. I just think it's really funny that it's Pollock's drip, but instead of being in the canvas, it's up in the air. And it's quite different from what you were previously mentioning with the flowers. Those are, they're 3D objects, but they're 2D. When you look at them, they're perceived as 2D paintings, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? So they're framed, they're, they're placed on paper? Yes, yeah, so oh, at the beginning when I started making the paint skin collages, I used paper and I used panel, a substrate. But the last one that I made, I made a, a really big skin and I don't like making skins specifically for work. They have to be, they're the waste of other, other works, other paintings. So that one I had to make specifically for that work. So I made a big giant skin and I collaged on top of that. Yeah, and I know you've also done a lot of printmaking. Yes. And you've combined some of those elements as well. And I know you you seem to pull and take from different areas of expertise and combine them together. Where does the printmaking play in your current process? Or, I mean, even if it isn't... I know you're not spending a whole lot of time um, printmaking right now, but it still has to have some kind of a, it's establishing itself somehow in your work. I can see it. Oh, I need a clone that prints for me. One hour, you're thinking you're gonna spend an hour there, you're gonna be there for five hours. So the things that I like about printmaking, I'm not interested in printmaking as a way of making multiples. I want to uh, use, printmaking in the press is an element of surprise. The way I describe it to people is, okay, when that print comes off the press, it's and you see it for the very first time, it's like seeing a new baby, you know, and you immediately fall in love. It doesn't matter how hard it was, you want to do it again and again and again and again. So I, I like that element of surprise that happens from the press. But for me, the uh, print itself is a bit of a substrate. I like putting things on it. I like uh, paint skins or to me, you know, because I don't know the rules, nothing's sacred. So I will cut up lithography print and collage with it, collage on top of it. And uh, that way I can make uh, three-dimensional pieces from my prints. That's one of the things that I remember about one of the pieces that you have up as a mono print, but it also, you've taken paint skins and cut out other things and actually used some of the geometry. I know there's some circular pieces and, and they're all kind of combined together in this. It's interesting because it's hard to tell at first glance what's what, you know, they're acting on so many different levels, the material so that you really have to take some time to kind of unpack it well you know it's like food it's like you're making food and you have like all these ingredients and then you just combine them together and kevin you were talking about floral i guess maybe it's subconscious but you seem to bring some element of nature in somewhere because the pieces you have now i believe there are some sticks in there Mm -hmm. 
I've seen gourds, cocoons, yeah. So there, it seems like some elements of nature creep in the yes. nest. Exactly. So is that subconscious or is... So, you know, I include flowers in the work because my work is about... Uh, a big theme in my work is identity and that's what my name means, flower. And I think that nobody had ever figured that out. I kind of didn't say it to see whether people would say oh yeah identity that's your name but nobody's ever said it so uh i the use secrets out now <laughs> the secrets out now what language is it italian italian okay yes my uh, great-grandmother was italian and uh, whenever a new baby was born she would choose our name and that's the name that she chose for me so you have a a rich heritage right you're italian and uh, one of my grandmothers is indigenous from uh, El Salvador. Then uh, the other grandparents are from Palestine. And I have uh, another set of Italian grandparents. So, wow, know, you can get all of kinds of grants. <laughs> <laughs> you can apply, you can check all those boxes. So, Sorry, I'm, lo- it's I'm a- looking at the financial. At the financial, aren't we all? When we're artists, you're, yeah. So uh, elements in the work, I think, that are, you know, referent to nature. I like to use them as symbols. So, for example, when I use a material like like silk or a silk cocoon, I'm using it because of the symbolic value of, of that material. So it silk references transformation. So that's the the real reason why I'm using it. And I see a lot of that thematically in your work. Not only has your work transformed over the last couple of years, but that meta-narrative seems to resonate as far as it's kind of dominant in your work. So I mainly work abstractly. I don't work representationally very often. And uh, it's a way, I use abstraction as a way to send a coded message. So there's always a narrative in the work. And, and, you know, it's kind of like an ice spy. You have to find the little clues in it and uh, figure it out. Do you spend time in nature? No. (laughs) No. That was a coded, coded message, too. I want to try to tie it in back into that book because there's the, the book, The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. Because he's talking about creative process and how people do different things whenever they start their, their day. Like for a podcast, we like to do a little banter and just loosen things, you know, just just ease into the podcast. Are there things that you do? Like, is there routines that you do? Do you listen to music or do you... How do you get to the creative mindset? So, you know, like things for me that are absolutely non-negotiable. First one is exercise. I have to exercise for at least an hour every single day. Otherwise, you know, there's just this malaise that, you know, takes over me and I find it very hard to pay attention. So I do have to exercise. And uh, then the other thing, you know, like I don't like to brood in the studio. You know, that if I get into that mindset, it's kind of like a slippery slope. And then I end up not making anything that day. So, you know, what I listen to is I listen to like pop, but it has to be like cotton candy, you know, Britney Spears, uh, Dua Lipa, 
Lady Gaga. Love all that. Oh, Katy Perry. Love Katy Perry. Taylor Swift. Are you Swifty? <laughs> yes, of course. Love her. Do you like... She trolls you... people, and I do that, too, in my artwork. So I take a page from Taylor. Do you listen to Latino music? Not anymore. When uh, I got here, I wanted to become more fluent in English. Mm-hmm. So I tried to have as many American friends or people that would speak English only. So I would become more fluent. So I did not watch Spanish TV or have a, a lot of conversations in Spanish. And I think that that really helped me with language acquisition and syntax and, uh, you know, just fluency in general. So what... What music is popular in El Salvador? Is it U.S. music? Or? So, you know, okay, so nowadays, back when I was growing up, mm-hmm. Spanish pop and Spanish rock were a thing. Maná, yeah. Stereo, Aterciopelados. Okay. You know, now I feel like uh, music in Spanish is a lot of it is reggaeton. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a huge fan of reggaeton. What about so. cumbia? Oh, I love cumbia. Do you? Yeah. Do you like Boba Estrella? Have you heard them? I don't know. I have to show you them. It's maybe techno or it's definitely techno cumbia, but it's it's good stuff. I'm eclectic in my tastes. Yeah, it's it's good. Well, if you like pop music, you definitely need to listen to Boba Estrella because their origins are cumbia and they still have that vibe that, that's going through it. But yeah, Boba Estrella. Well, I can do it as team building. There you go. And we'll have Kelly dance. We will have Kelly dance. Everybody would want to see that. That will be the viral hook. That gets everybody to listen and watch. I do want to talk to you a little bit about your upcoming show. So Fiorella has a show coming up in May of this year. Yes. And um, I think we'll probably catch up with you again. Probably not right before. It'll be crazy. uh, But maybe a little bit afterwards. What is your vision for this show? I know it's still coming together. So, okay, the show is at Cedar House Gallery in Savannah, May 19th, 5 to 8 p.m. That's the opening reception, and it's going to be open, I think, until Monday. So from Friday to Monday, you'll be able to see it. Uh, It's my plan at the moment. I mean, things can change. I want to have the big fibers pieces like bookending gallery and I want to make an environment and use these aerial wire pieces that I'm hoping to make uh, in the next few months and using fibers, paint, found objects, ready-mades, things from the hardware store. Uh, just My the, favorite. Yes. Uh, I love going to the hardware store and picking and you things got, up. You got some friends at the hardware store, don't you? Oh, yeah. You know, that there, it's been viral on TikTok that if you want to get a husband, you should go to Home Depot. I, I don't need one, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will keep that in mind. <laughs> Oh, wow. Um, I forgot. Yeah, I I have fans at Home Depot. I was there at 6.30 this morning. Did you have any fans at Home Depot? (laughs) (laughs) They they were very helpful, and I got in and out in a very short amount of time. Okay, good. That wasn't the case the last time I went with you and Melanie. And uh, I think we were in there for like an hour just checking out all the different, you know, gauges of wire, and which was fun. 
like yeah. that too. Yeah. Uh, so that's my favorite thing. I love to go around Home Depot with a shopping cart and just pick things up. I don't know the function of the object. I don't know what it's for, but I look at it and if I like it, I bring it with me. So that's how I made nests out of uh, weed whacker string. Asked me why uh, I was picking that up and if I knew what it was for. And I said, no, but I like it. And, uh, you know, that piece is named Heads of Rolled for Less, you know, and had to reference the weed whacking somehow. Yeah, it was a good use of, of material in a very strange way, which is what it's all about, right? So, um, Kevin, you want to you wanna talk Rick Rubin? So, as I was talking about source of inspiration, as we were talking about that, there's a little short segment of the book that I'll read. This segment is called Memories in the Subconscious. When presented with new instrumental tracks for the first time, some vocalists record the first sounds out of their mouths with no thought or preparation. Often they'll sing random words or sounds that aren't words at all. It isn't uncommon out of the gibberish for a story to unfold or key phrases to appear. There's no active attempt to write in this process. The work is being created on a subconscious level. The material exists hidden within. There are practices that can assist in accessing this deeper well inside yourself. For example, you can try an anger-releasing exercise where you beat on a pillow for five minutes. It's more difficult than you think to do this for the full duration. Time yourself and go hard. Then immediately fill five pages with whatever comes out. The objective is to not think about it, to avoid directing the content in any way. Just write whatever words spill forth. There's an abundant reservoir of high-quality information in our subconscious, and finding ways to access it can spark new material to draw from. And it goes on, but it's trying to I gotta find something else to punch. (laughs) Maybe it'll bring out something from my subconscious that I could paint about. Possibly. I was trying to tie it back into our previous comments about OSHA. Yeah, I'm actually looking very much forward to reading this book. So... And I'm sure a lot of other people. Yeah, you said it's uh, it's sold out, right? This Rick Rubin book, back ordered. But yeah, that means they sold out of the first printing or whatever. So, cool. Well, Fiorella, it's been very nice talking to you. Well, thank thank you, you for taking the time to sit down with us. And this was fun. We're looking forward to your show and uh, whatever else you're working on in your studio. We're, yeah, uh, I'm gonna need helpers. Well, we can do that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Fiorella. Thank you, Kevin. If you have something that you want to hear or somebody you would like to be interviewed or yourself, you can email us at the10frame at gmail.com. Or you can also direct message us through the Instagram account at the10frame. Bingo, bingo, bingo. Yeah. Peace out.